This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 315th episode. Wow, time flies. From which episode? Number one. Well, number one, but even just 300 feels like just yesterday. Yes, but in our 315th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a whole deep dive into dinosaur cloacas, (laughs) which was quite the rabbit hole to go down. (laughs) Including the rabbit hole where you found out that the plural of cloaca is cloacas. I think so. There was one peer review article that used the term cloacas in the title. Everywhere else I saw said cloaca, but since one person did it, I'm going to use cloacas because it just seems more natural. This must be about the cetacosaurus. It is, yeah. And I think you have an article about a triceratops, right? In Australia? Oh yes, a very complete one. And I've got the dinosaur of the day, Rahunavis. Nice. I think we've been pronouncing that one wrong a lot. Like Rahunavis. It's possible. Our pronunciations of dinosaur names evolve over time. Yeah, we try to get to a closer consensus over time, but it is difficult. Also, really quickly, we finished our survey. Thank you to everyone who answered. And I just want to quickly point out that if you're listening to this podcast, the reason we had that weird question about whether you think we talk too fast or slow is because I feel like we talk too slow. And Sabrina sometimes tells me I talk too slow. <laughs> but then we heard from some people that they thought our podcast was way too fast. So I felt like I had no idea what people thought. But I think 90% of people said it was about right. But if you're one of the 10% of people that don't like the speed we talk at, you should download a podcast app that allows for variable speed. Most of them allow that now. And you can crank us up to like 3x speed if we're talking really too slow mm. or you can even slow us down and do like a slow-mo kind of voice if, you, if we go too fast we might sound a little chip monkey well, it depends on the podcast player some of them are really good at pitch correcting oh. so it doesn't sound chip monkey it's just a little bit faster i'm on android and i use an app called pocket casts mostly because it allows that time shifting on videos too So a lot of podcast apps don't even let you watch video podcasts. And if they do, they don't let you change the speed of them. But Pocket Cast does. And I think there are a few others that do. But all that is to say that if you don't like the speed we talk, there are some handy solutions built into most podcast apps. So definitely check that out if it's something that bothers you. Another thing you can do is trim silence. So if the pauses in between our words or sentences bothers you, you can cut that out too. It's almost like editing your own podcast. (laughs) Kind of. It's all automatic. Yeah. Which is cool. There are some podcasts I listen to where I'll change it. Like there's one segment that's really slow. Like if you think Garrett talks super slow, but Sabrina talks too fast, you could speed up my parts and slow down Sabrina's parts. Mm. I do that on some podcasts where the hosts are all out of whack. 
hopefully we're not too bad, but <laughs> it's an option. And real quickly, as always, we want to thank some of our patrons who are the driving force behind Ino Dino. And this week, we'd like to thank the Georges family, Graham, James Pascoe, Cosmic Parasaur, Callum, Christine, Jackson Crawford, Ellen, Wurgersaurus, and Rohan. Yeah, thank you so much. Because of your support, we can keep this podcast going and we really love doing it. And we also love talking to people in our Discord, which is one of the perks if you join. So check out our page, patreon.com slash inodino. Yeah, while preparing for this episode, I was procrastinating for about an hour or two on Discord, chatting to people about some dinosaur museums and things. So <laughs> time well worth spending. I think so, yes. I get to start with the news today because we got some feedback in the survey that people like it when I start. They said that they thought we should mix it up more, not that you were better at starting. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, no, that's not how I heard it. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> so, to start, in Melbourne, Australia, Museums Victoria now has the world's most complete triceratops skeleton, which is 87% complete. Museums Victoria? That's the group of museums. Oh, okay. But it's probably in the natural history variant. Yeah, and that one's called the Melbourne Museum. Gotcha. So yeah, 87% complete, which is amazing. That includes skin impressions, tendons, and a nearly complete skull and spine. Wow. The skull means not that much when it comes to triceratops because those things appear just all over the place. But the tendons and skin impressions and even the spine is pretty cool to find for a triceratops. Definitely. Well, the skull in this case, too, it's actually 99% complete and it weighs 575 pounds or 261 kilograms. So it's still good because, yeah, there's a lot of triceratops skulls out there, but I don't think all of them are that complete. I wonder if that's a smaller individual because 575 pounds actually sounds kind of light. Do you remember at Museum of the Rockies? Uh, one of those was like the size of a car. Yeah. I feel like that would have weighed significantly more than 575 oh, pounds. Oh, really? I thought they were around 600 pounds, but I can't remember. Although, depending on who this is, they might consider that to be a Taurosaurus. So maybe Triceratops has an upper limit <laughs> on size. If you go down that hole, Triceratops and Taurosaurus are the same thing. In all of the news and press items about this, though, it said this was a Triceratops horridus, an adult. Interesting. Yep. But according to some people, again, an adult Triceratops horridus is a Taurosaurus that has the holes in the frills. So I guess they're going with Triceratops and Taurosaurus are different, being splitters. But in any event, when this goes on display, that would be really cool to see. Yeah, it's going on display 2021. And they're going to let scientists from around the world study it at the museum. So maybe it'll be on and off display, potentially, maybe. if people are trying to study it. Or maybe you'll be able to watch them study it. Ooh, that'd be something. cool. Yeah, I didn't see the details on that. But they have a really cool rendering of what they think this Triceratops looks like. I made a little video about it. I wonder if where they're going to put it. Because right now, when you go into the dinosaur hall in the Melbourne Museum, it's like, a whole bunch of replicas mm. from all over the world. I wonder if they'll just take out some of those replicas and stick the real Triceratops in there. There's also the room off to the side that has the holotypes. Yeah, but that's pretty full, I feel like, because mm. there's the big Mudaburosaurus in there. And then on the side, they've got all like the Atlas Copcosaurus and Laelinosaurus and all those little ornithopods and mm -hmm. things. 
and non-dinosaurs are over there as well. I guess we'll, we'll have to hear from somebody who visits next year. That's true. So the really cool thing about this is because it's so complete, Dr. Eric Fitzgerald, who's the senior curator of paleontology there, said, quote, this is the Rosetta Stone for understanding Triceratops. Hmm. Nice. Makes sense. We got skin impressions and tendons. And they found this particular skeleton in Montana in 2014. Cool. Yeah, that's a long trip from Montana to Melbourne. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's probably difficult to ship it to. Yeah. Speaking of Rosetta Stones, I've got the Rosetta Stone of dinosaur cloacas. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, it's on a preprint server, which is kind of nice because that means that I have access to all of it. And it was written by Phil Bell, Michael Pittman, and others. And you might have seen quite a bit about this maybe about a month ago, talking about dinosaur butts and things like that. Maybe I should say, if you're listening to this with children and you haven't had the birds and bees conversation and you don't want it to come from me, (laughs) you should skip this. Mm. It's going to be a very in-depth discussion about how dinosaur cloaca anatomy looked like, which again, the cloaca is the combo hole that dinosaurs have. Right. It's got multiple uses. Yes, many uses. All the uses Mm -hmm. that holes can have, basically. It's ever eating. And hearing. And breathing. So I guess just some of the uses. Seeing. All the exit things. There we go. And one input. But in any event, this cloaca is on a Cetacosaurus. We actually mentioned this individual a few times, but one of the more significant times was back in episode 96, which was like four years ago, when Cetacosaurus got its fancy new reconstruction. Oh, I remember that. It was really pretty. It was. It had counter shading, so the bottom of it was lighter and the top is darker to sort of blend in with the environment better. It showed the filaments on the tail. Mm -hmm. It had preserved skin. In the paper, they mentioned the presence of a cloaca, but they didn't mention anything else about it. And I don't think we mentioned that on the show just because it was sort of felt like a throwaway comment. Right. Well, maybe they knew that there would be a separate paper about the cloaca. Yes. And this paper goes deep down the cloaca rabbit hole. Maybe that's not the best term for it. That's an interesting phrase. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) all the details about the Cetacosaurus cloaca you could ever want to know. So... Again, the cloaca is the combined organ in reptiles and birds, which includes the urethra, the anus, and genitalia all in one magnificent hole. It's a three-for-one deal. Yes. Technically, the cloaca is mostly on the inside, and then there's muscles separating different chambers. So there's like three sphincters, and then they open into like, I don't know, like an atrium. Hmm. And then the hole to the outside world is called the vent. So they're sort of like three holes inside a hole. And that whole thing or kinda, <laughs> is huh. called the cloaca. Well, it's like three chambers and then leads to a hole. Well, yeah, there's three chambers that lead to a chamber, kind of, that lead to a vent. Do you know what I'm saying? I think so. So like if you have a urethra sphincter and you've got the anus sphincter and you've got whatever genitals, then those all open up. And then immediately after that is the vent which is just the big, that's the only thing you see from the outside is the vent. You mm-hmm. don't see the three individual things. Okay. That's what makes it a cloaca, that the they combine before they exit. So the reason I didn't report on this when it was all over the place is because it was on this preprint server and I was hoping that it would get published somewhere else and it could be like an official paper published somewhere, but that doesn't seem to be happening. So I decided to just talk about it anyway because I didn't want it to be super old news. 
And based on the paleontological response that I've seen on Twitter and on comment sections, various places, it seems completely uncontroversial. So I'm okay with talking about it now. We all know Cetacosaurus had a cloaca. We do. And it seems like most people that wanted to know what kind of cloaca it has figured it out in 2016, if not earlier. Oh, interesting. This is that Seckenberg individual that's in Germany that's really famous. It's been famous for a long time. Scientists have had access to it for a long time. So if you're interested in the anatomy and like the cloaca of dinosaurs, you could have gone and looked at this many times over the years. So I think it's it was sort of well known without being really published. That could be why it's not too controversial. Yeah, exactly. But I should point out that it's still preprint, so the results could change. And some of the things I say, like with all science, could change as we find out more. But one funny comment, my favorite one that I found when I was searching through different articles and comments over the internet was Brian Eng, and he was bragging about how accurate the cloaca that he had sculpted was before the paper came out. Yeah, good for him. <laughs> yeah. Although that was on a Dilophosaurus, which is a very distant relative of Cetacosaurus, but there might be some overlap. Yeah. And the authors did at one point say, we think that the most parsimonious answer at this point is that all dinosaurs probably had a similar cloaca. Mm -hmm. So I think he's in the clear there. Another cool detail is in the paper they point out about 70 years ago, Alfred Romer, who we've talked about a lot, he's a pretty famous paleontologist, predicted that archosaurs had cloacas and guessed at the position. And this paper basically 100% confirmed his hypothesis. He was like spot on on like a bunch of details about the cloaca. That's like when Thomas Huxley was spot on about dinosaurs being bird-like. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty similar. And I think that also might be why this paper is so uncontroversial because people that, you know, might have spent the last 70 years thinking, yeah, that's probably right. On the family tree, Cetacosaurus is an early ceratopsian but it's in the early Cretaceous, which is obviously pretty far down the dinosaur family tree. So it still could be different than other Ornithischians, Ornithischians, let alone Saurischians like theropods and sauropods and things like that. But again, since this is the only dinosaur cloaca we have. So far. Yeah. Oh, except for with theropods, because theropods are dinosaurs too. So they have different cloacas. So somewhere along the line, theropod cloacas had to change and be different than the Cetacosaurus style. Isn't the Laphosaurus a theropod? Yeah, but what I mean is like, so since modern birds are theropods, we know that modern theropods don't have a Cetacosaurus-like cloaca, mm. but we don't know when it switched. So Dilophosaurus might have had a cloaca like Cetacosaurus or might have had one like a modern bird. Oh, so Brining might not be in the clear yet. Maybe, yeah, but I think most people would say since Dilophosaurus was in the Jurassic and it was pretty early and it's not really on the line going over to birds. Plus, one of the things with birds is they have a pygo style. They don't have a tail. And once I get more into the anatomy, the tail is pretty important. So one might assume that it changed once the tail went away mm. on birds and Dilophosaurus still has a normal dinosaur tail. Mm -hmm. Specifically to this individual, since we only have the one to go by, I should point out that, you know, we're just talking about one cloaca, not like this is what Cetacosaurus cloaca looks like. It's like this is what this single Cetacosaurus's right. cloaca looks like. It's kind of like when you describe Sue the T-Rex and you're like, well, the pathology's on Sue. That's for Sue only. Exactly. Yeah. And unfortunately with dinosaurs, a lot of times we only have one example of any feature because we just have the one holotype of a species or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in this case, 
the individual is described as a, quote, nearly sexually mature subadult, end quote, hmm. which is kind of a weird description. But this seems to be mostly based on other specimens because, as they put it, histological examination was not available. In other words, they wouldn't let us cut into the dinosaur bones right. <laughs> to check how old it was and you know what the skeletal structure looked like. So what they ended up doing was they sort of compared the size of the femur, and then they found that that was about as long as some other Cetacosaurus femora that were roughly six to seven years old that they could do histology on. So they said, this one's probably about six to seven years old too. And based on some other details, we think that it's also probably a larger subadult, which is important with a cloaca because if you're sexually mature or near sexually mature in this case, the cloaca might start to look differently because it has the genitalia in it. Mm -hmm. So it might change some. Unfortunately, only the outside of the cloaca is really preserved. I mean, I'm saying that, but since they didn't do histology, it's possible that if they cut into it, maybe they could find a little bit of detail inside of it. Mm -hmm. Well, but what about CT scans? I don't think they put it in a CT scanner. I think it's still in one large block, which would oh, make okay. it difficult. But yeah, that I mean, that that could be a possibility in the future. Unfortunately, though, they couldn't determine the sex of the Cetacosaurus because, like I was saying with the vent, mm -hmm. like... It's just a single opening on the outside. It doesn't give you much information. Right. And even when they went through some trouble to point out that there are a lot of theories on being able to tell the sex of a archosaur based on the skeleton or based on like the puffiness of the vent, they said, no, <laughs> it doesn't actually work when you look at it statistically. Mm -hmm. If it's bulging, both males and females will do that. And then there's these elements of the base of the tail that look a little bit different and they were saying some people say that those are shorter that there's more space at the base of the tail basically less skeleton in the way hmm. for giving birth in females but it turns out statistically that's not significant either so if it was significant this one might be a female because the base of the tail looks a little bit smaller potentially interesting that's one of the hardest things to figure out about dinosaurs yeah but you'd think when you're looking at the cloaca, right. that's your best possible chance ever because that's literally the sex organs of the animal. Right. But if you're only looking at the outside. Yeah. that's the And in dinosaurs, since they don't have any external genitalia, yeah, it's a problem. If you're curious, the exact position of the cloaca is in between the ischia and the third hemal arch. And hemal arches are part of the vertebrae that stick out of the bottom of the tail vertebrae. Hmm. So the neural arch sticks out of the top. That's the kind of things like the neural spines are what's on a spinosaurus sail sticking up out of the back. And then hemal arches go down on the bottom. But I think they're only ever on the tail. So in this case, the first few Cetacosaurus vertebrae don't have hemal arches. So even though it's on the third hemal arch, it actually lines up in between the fifth and sixth tail vertebrae which was surprising to me because it's actually a decent ways down the tail. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit farther down the tail than on some other reptiles. I think they're usually like around the third vertebrae. Oh, more mysteries to unravel. Yeah, a little bit. It looks really weird too. I'm sorry if you get some weird ads after my searches, but I was searching for like crocodilians giving birth and stuff because I wanted to see where the cloaca was on a crocodile. <laughs> I'll let you know what pops up in the next few days. <laughs> in your Google ads <laughs> yeah. or your on random sites. Yeah. But even on a crocodilian, which has the cloaca a little bit closer to the legs, 
and the base of the tail than Cetacosaurus, it looks like basically the cloaca is on the tail. It's really weird. I've never thought about it before, but literally, like when they're laying eggs, it sort of comes out of their tail. Hmm. It's not really just like the bottom of the animal. That's not usually how we see it in documentaries and different 3D depictions, too. Yeah, I I know I've seen it in some in a more accurate position. Like I think in that T-Rex autopsy, they put it a little bit farther back. And I know in some depictions where they show dinosaurs mating and they're sort of trying to wrap their tails around each other, mm-hmm. that sort of gives you the impression that the cloaca is farther back. But yeah, it's it's weird to me that it's it's so far back. I always think of it as sort of like in between the legs, right. but it's significantly behind the legs. That's probably because a lot of modern animals, it's right in between the legs. Yeah, for mammals at least, for sure. Mm-hmm. And we're very mammal-centric, being mammals and all. <laughs> On Cetacosaurus, the vent is only about two centimeters or less than an inch long. Of course, this is kind of like shriveled up and desiccated and all that in the fossilization process. Also, Cetacosaurus isn't that big. Yeah, it is relatively small. And it has to fit in between that hemal arch, that third hemal arch, and the ischium, which actually come pretty close together because weirdly, the hemal arch curves towards the vent. So if you imagine you've got your tail, of your dinosaur and the neural arches are sticking straight up perpendicular to the length of the tail and the hemal arches are sticking straight down also perpendicular to the tail the hemal arch the third one curves back towards the legs of the animal hmm. and it sort of potentially outlines kind of where the the soft tissue boundary of the animal was and the ischium is one of the hip bones and it sticks backwards and connects to the other side of that vent mm-hmm. so it's pretty interesting. It is. Do they need to update the rendering of Cetacosaurus or it looks pretty similar to the 2016 version? I think it's pretty similar, but I, I don't know how much detail they put into the cloaca right? or if they even included it at all. That's true. If it's kind of just under the tail. Yes. And it's, it's a pretty narrow slit too. So mm-hmm. it's, it's nothing super obvious. It might be obvious by my description so far, but since it's connected to the tail and the hips, the vent runs parallel to the body. So it, it runs sort of along the tail. And this is the same as crocodilians. I saw some tweets about that. Yes. Uh, there was a lot of emphasis on it being the same as crocodilians. But then you may be wondering, well, what's the alternative? What what other kind of cloacas are there out there? This was a rabbit hole I went down. Mm-hmm. So the two other main types of cloacas in contention are the Lepidosaur-style cloaca and the bird-style cloaca. And Lepidosaurs, as a quick reminder, are mostly snakes and lizards. They're the sister taxon to archosaurs, and archosaurs are pterosaurs, crocodilians, and dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So... So there's a chance it could have looked like that. Exactly, because they probably had a common ancestor not too long before either of those groups evolved. But lepidosaurs are pretty easy to differentiate from the sort of cloaca because they're always rotated 90 degrees from what we see in cetacosaurus. Hmm. They're always perpendicular to the tail. So yeah, it's weird, but it's always like that. There are some other differences that you see between different lepidosaur species, obviously, like the overall size and some of those types of details, but they're always perpendicular to the length of the animal, apparently. And so it's it's easy to tell that Cetacosaurus has a more archosaur-like cloaca than lepidosaur. Then in birds, their cloacas are either round or square. 
Square. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't want to go down looking at too many pictures of bird cloacas. Fair. So I just took the references word for it. But yes, this one is not round or square. It is just a narrow slit running parallel to the tail. There are no square eggs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But there are square poop. Wombats poop squares. Right. But wombats don't have bird-like cloacas. That's true. And I think it's actually the shape of their colon and not the sphincter that mm. causes that. I don't know why it's square. Maybe it's species identification or something. Interestingly, the scale pattern of the different major groups of cloacas are also different. Crocodilians have more rounded scales near the cloaca and they get smaller the closer you get to the vent. In lepidosaurs, they have larger, more rectangular scales all around the vent. And in birds, they don't have any scales at all or feathers. It's completely bare skin, but it's sort of mostly covered by feathers most of the time. And then they can like adjust their feathers to expose it when they need to. Mm -hmm. So again, Cetacosaurus is much more like a crocodilian. It has those rounder scales and they get smaller as you get closer to the vent. So really it's a two for two on crocodilian cloaca Ew. scoring. And therefore, we can be pretty confident that Cetacosaurus had a very crocodilian-like cloaca, and by extension, we'd assume that most dinosaurs also did, until we find more fossils. It's kind of like the scales are pointing you to the cloaca. A little bit, yeah. Ew. Could help the other dinosaurs to find each other's cloacas. Mm -hmm. Based on this, we can assume that crocodilians and cetacosaurus might have had an internal cloaca that's similar to the external vent of the cloaca. And that would mean, quote, cetacosaurus probably had a muscular, unpaired, and ventrally positioned copulatory organ, end quote. Hmm. In other words, males had a single phallus rather than paired hemipenes like squamates, because squamates actually have a pair of penis, oh. also known as hemipenes. And they look interesting. Again, something I was looking into that's going to be weird in our search history. It's like when we found out that koalas have bifurcated vaginas. Yeah. So, yeah, very similar, except on the male side of things. Mm -hmm. And then in birds, they barely protrude from the cloaca when they mate. But in crocodilians, they have a little bit more of a phallus that comes out. So... That might make some difference for their mating, but really, I think it's going to be the same kind of quote-unquote cloacal kiss where they have to press their cloacas together because it's still all internal most of the time. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to make it too much easier to mate. That's interesting, too, thinking of the cloacal kiss when it's basically on their tails. Yes. Yeah, it's really interesting. There was some talk about that at SVP that I can't go into, but I'm waiting for these papers to get published so we can talk about them. But yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more research into cloacas in the near future and maybe ironing out some of these details. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. 
Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, our next topic might not be as exciting as cloacas, although maybe this group will find some more dinosaur cloaca skeletons, <laughs> specimens. I guess that's true about any paleontologist. This is true. So Southwestern Adventist University's Dinosaur Science Museum and Research Center. It's a mouthful. It's too much. <laughs> They're building a bigger facility for their on-site research station, and that's at the Hanson Family Ranch in Wyoming. Because they found so many fossils. Which is why. Maybe they'll find some cloacas. I don't know. So for the last 25 years, students and researchers have gone on these annual digs. They've cataloged more than 30,000 dinosaur fossils. Wow. That is a lot. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And the station that they built, it was originally meant for 20 people. Now they get as many as 200 people during their peak weekends. Holy cow. Yeah. It's just on a ranch. Yes. So that's, yeah, there's maybe like five people there normally and then 200 people show up. (laughs) I don't know if it's as few as five, but yeah. (laughs) So this new facility is going to be three times bigger than the old facility. It's going to be able to hold up to 120 people per day. And they really need it because a storm destroyed the old research station in the fall. Oh. Yeah. So their goal is to start building it early spring 2021. It's going to cost about $500,000. And the plan is that they're still going to have a summer dig. So having this station will be important. $500,000 does not sound too bad for something like that. Yeah. I wonder if it's cheaper to build in Wyoming than California. I mean, most places are cheaper than California, so probably. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) So according to director and curator of the museum, Jared Wood, This station, quote, provides us with shelter from storms, a place to cook and serve meals, bathrooms and showers, and most importantly, a hub for us to process our data using high-precision GPS units and advanced computing systems. The lack of an adequate field station will greatly reduce our capacity to perform our research and will present a significant challenge to supporting the hundreds of participants we receive each year. 
And he said that in the Cliburn Times review. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if, if they had a building and then it suddenly got destroyed, it sure throws a wrench into the works. Right. And since they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, you know, you need the place to cook. Mm-hmm. And the bathrooms. Right. And then I wasn't even thinking about storms because usually you go in the summer, but there can still be storms in summer. The one of the two days that we've been in Wyoming, there was one of the craziest lightning storms we've ever seen. Do you remember that? I do. We were driving and the lightning was maybe 50 miles ahead of us, but it was so <laughs> flat, it looked like it was right in front of us. And there weren't any trees or anything in between. So you just saw lightning all around all the time and it was crazy windy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. It's good to have shelter. Yeah. And then, of course, you want to be able to process your data. Good point. Yeah. You need a place to put your computers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So hopefully they're able to open it up soon. Well, build it and then open it. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Rahu Navis, which was a request from PaleoMike716 via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Rahu Navis was a bird-like theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now northwestern Madagascar in the Mavarano Formation. It was small and carnivorous. It was about 2.3 feet or 0.7 meters long, and it weighed between 1 to 5 pounds, or 0.45 to 2.27 kilograms. That is small. Mm -hmm. It's one of those really bird-like dinosaurs. So there's debate in the past over whether it belongs to the clad AVLA or if it was a dromaeosaurid. I guess if it's a bird, a pound isn't that small. (laughs) That's true. Five pounds is kind of big. Anyway, (laughs) Rahunavis had quill knobs on its forearm, so it was thought to be AVLN. But the rest of its body is like a dromaeosaurid, so it's got this sickle claw on its second toe. It's also not clear if it could fly. It did have long arms, and it had a low crest on its head. The type species is Rahunavis ostromai, and the genus name means cloud menace bird. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's from the Malagasy word rahuna, and then Latin avis. And the species name, you might have guessed, is in honor of John Ostrom. Yeah, he gets quite a few... Dinosaurs named after him, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Well, he had a lot of great discoveries. Catherine Forster and others, they found a partial skeleton in the Mahajanga province in 1995. There was this joint expedition between State University of New York and University of Antananarivo. Most of that area is covered in dense grass, but part of the hillside was exposed by fire, and fossils from a titanosaur were exposed. So people were excavating the titanosaur, and that's when they discovered Rahunavis fossils. Good job, titanosaur. (laughs) Did it squish it, kill it? No, there was no talk of that. (laughs) So, no. (laughs) Rahunavis was named by Forrester and others then in 1998. They originally called it Rahuna, but they changed it after finding out that the name Rahuna was used for a moth. Always with those invertebrates, taking the good names. (laughs) So the holotype includes hind limbs, parts of the tail, parts of the wing and shoulder bones, and the pelvis. And Rahunavis was found on its right side with the caudal vertebrae, pelvis, and most of its hind limbs. The left femur, vertebra, left scapula, right ulna, and right radius were part of the holotype, but they weren't found articulated with the rest of the body. Almost as if some sort of sauropod squished them. There was no talk of that. We don't know. (laughs) And we also don't think so. So, originally, Rahunavis was thought to be closely related to Archaeopteryx because its pelvis is similar and it shows flight adaptations, but this could have evolved independently. Later studies found that the pelvic girdle was, quote-unquote, typically theropodon. 
It didn't have a hypopubic cup-like Archaeopteryx. And they also thought Rahunavis was a chimera with bird forelimbs and theropod hindlimbs because there was a primitive bird, Verona, that was found nearby. So some scientists don't think that the forearm with the quill knobs belonged to Rahunavis and that the forearm could belong to a bird instead. Forster and others said in 1998 that the forelimbs may not have belonged to the same individual or taxon, but they thought that was unlikely due to it being found so close to the specimen and also the taphonomic distributions of bones within the quarry where it was found. And then in 2007, Luis Chiappi said that all the bones attributed to Rahunavis were buried in an area, quote, smaller than a letter-sized page. Those are pretty close then. Mm-hmm. He also said Rahunavis probably could fly and that its ulna was large and robust compared to Archaeopteryx, and that with the quill knobs, it probably had larger, more powerful wings than Archaeopteryx. Also, the shoulder bones have evidence of ligament attachments that allow for flapping movements. Nice. But he said it probably would have been more, quote, clumsy in the air than modern birds. Well, modern birds are amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. We, I mean, some of those nature shows where they show slow-mo of birds oh flying. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, not clumsy at all. They're astonishingly graceful. And the way they can turn so abruptly. Or like fly through dense woods that have gaps a quarter of their width mm-hmm. and things. It's just, they're amazing. So it's not surprising that the early evolution 100 million years ago might not have been perfect. They're still working it out. Yeah. <laughs> so Rahu Davis is related to Oviraptor. And we talked about Oviraptor in episode 290. So now with the discovery and naming of Oviraptor this year, Oviraptor and Rahunavis are considered to be in the same group, and that's in between Unanlagiidae and Aviale. Okay. And Unanlagiidae, again, is that group of South American dromaeosaurs. So not bird, not all that bird-like, I should say. Mm-hmm. And to repeat, Rahunavis was found in Madagascar. So still Gondwana, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Oviraptor was found in Argentina. So that makes sense for the Unanlagiids, but Rahunavis had some distance to go from mm-hmm. Madagascar. Maybe it flew. Yeah, that's an easy way to get to an island, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, so Mata and others who named Oviraptor called Rahunavis, quote-unquote, problematic. Yeah, agreed. Mm. At least two Rahunavis individuals have been found, and there's a dentary that's been provisionally referred to Rahunavis. Fragments of beta-keratin have been found in the foot claw, and scans showed a lot of similarities with the claw sheath to an emu. Oh, so they probably used the emu antibodies or something in order to compare. Mm -hmm. Cool. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs. 
www.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And our fun fact of the day is about your favorite sorbod tooth. Oh, yeah. in the news. I missed that one. It's a gem-quality opalized sauropod tooth from Lightning Ridge in New South Wales. Do you remember that? The one I got to hold? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I look at that picture often. It is the most beautiful tooth I've ever seen. It's this, I don't even know how to describe it, just like a green gem. Right, really iridescent. Yeah, and sort of a light green, but then when you look at it from different angles, since it's opal, you see like oranges and other colors just kind of pop out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's like solid opal too. No matter which side you look at of the tooth, it's that green color. It's not like it's just opal on the surface and a bunch of potch, oh, as yeah. they call it, on the other side. I was nervous to hold it. Yeah. I'm still amazed I was allowed. I think I touched it a little bit, but I don't think I held it mm-hmm. the same way you did. Very cool fossil. That was amazing that the Australian Opal Center let us touch it and mm-hmm. see it. I think it's also, if you're wondering, about the size of a double-A battery is how I describe it. Are you thinking maybe more triple-A? I'd say a double-A. Okay. Because it's a little thicker. Okay. And it's a one of those like peg-like teeth. We would describe it as like a diplodocus kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the news, though, it wasn't just about that tooth. It also included four other teeth, four other sauropod teeth. Also opalized? Yeah, all from Lightning Ridge, all opalized. And this was an article by Timothy Frauenfelder and others, and they also thanked the Australian Opal Center for their support and access, because without the Australian Opal Center, most of the stuff would get ground down and turned into gemstones and stuff. They're this amazing group who are in Lightning Ridge, and they go out and they make relationships with the miners, and they get them to donate a lot of these things Mm -hmm. to the Australian Opal Center, because people who are spending their life digging out opal and occasionally finding some fossils can't always afford to part with it. But when they can, you know, they like to make a difference. They want to see significant stuff in their community and like leave it there for future generations to marvel at. Yeah. And the museum's got so many specimens now that they're building an entire new facility. Yeah. I looked it up. I couldn't see any updates on if that construction is going forward. It might have stalled this year. It could be. Yeah. When we were there, they had a huge pit in the ground because it's going to be mostly underground. Mm-hmm. They said <laughs> it was going to take three years. Yeah. So I guess we wouldn't expect it to be done by now anyway. We've got a YouTube video about the museum in Lightning Ridge too. Yes. It's so cool. The museum. And the video is okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. I mean, between that one, the Dinosaur Museum in Aromanga, and the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum, all in the outback in the same general sort of area. I mean, mm-hmm. they're like 1,500 miles apart. But they're all getting huge new updates and new construction projects going on. It's going to be an amazing place to visit. Like I said, there were four other teeth. So in total, five types of teeth. And they all look different enough that they called them all the different types of teeth, not just different individual teeth. Although they did point out that some of them could be from the same mouth if they're heterodonts. In other words, like us, where we have different looking teeth in the front of the mouth versus the back of the mouth. Out of the five, your favorite tooth is by far the prettiest. (laughs) It's the only like beautiful green one and the only one that really looks like an amazing opal to me. There's one really ugly one <laughs> oh. that looks like just plain potch, which is what they call that kind of sandy gray opal that doesn't really have any gem quality to it. Still cool. It's a sauropod tooth. Yeah, it is still cool. Still cooler than most other sauropod teeth, too, because it's technically opal. Two of them are mostly gray, but have like little specks of color in them. And then the last one is light tan 
with some red in it. That sort sounds of, pretty. Yeah, it's sort of like a streak of red that goes around the edge of the tooth. I think, it, yeah, it is very pretty. Not as pretty as the green one, though. Mm. And that last one, too, is also significantly wider than the others. It's not so peg-like. It's more leaf-ish shaped or something. Mm-hmm. When they got down into it and really examined the individual teeth, they determined that there were at least three different types of dinosaur, one possible titanosaur, and at least two non-titanosaur titanosaur forms. Okay. So in other words, like one is actually, if you do the family tree, it's in Titanosauria, and the other two are like not quite in it, but they look Titanosaur-ish. They point out that there are also three Titanosaur forms in the Winton Formation, which is way up to the northwest, that's the Australian Age of Dinosaur Museum, in Queensland. And that might mean that there's sort of a similar type of segmentation happening in these dinosaur faunas. Mm -hmm. But those didn't include the finds in Aromanga. Oh, and there's a lot of those. There are. None of them have been published yet, but we've seen them in person, so we know that they're there. And the coolest one, I think, is Cooper, which is like a 100-foot-long, massive sauropod that should be published any day now. I've been waiting. Oh, that's true. They they told us it was nearing publication when we were there a year ago. Mm, maybe there was more to find. Yeah, that could be. Or it could be that the scientists couldn't make it out to Aramanga because of COVID. But I really do love that museum. It is so fantastic. I love Australia in general, but especially the outback where all the dinosaurs are. It's just Mm -hmm. wonderful. One of my favorite places on earth. Oh, and seeing the opalized fossils was amazing. Yes. Speaking of the opalized fossils, two of the teeth had wear on them, and that was really useful for the analysis because different tooth types had different wear patterns, and that allowed them to make some guesses about what they were eating. And what they ended up determining was that they think that one of the individuals probably ate about one meter above ground level. So pretty low (laughs) browser there for a sauropod. Mm -hmm. But the other ate at mid canopy, as they described it, which is a pretty huge range in height of one to 10 meters or three to 30 feet above ground level. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think that's because the types of leaves that they found, you just can't break down any more than like, you know, they're somewhere in that height range. That would be funny though, if one ate about a meter above ground level and the other one was three meters. Yeah. (laughs) Or if one was at one meter and one was at 10 meters and nothing was eating in between. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess there'd probably be like a hadrosaur or something that would get in there and fill that niche. No leaf unturned. Exactly. So in this case, we think that it's probably niche partitioning and they're eating different diets and that way the sauropods can coexist. Happily, because they're such happy, peaceful creatures. (laughs) Sure. So I have a little side rabbit hole I went down, which was about Australian geology, because like I said, I love Australia and it's fascinating. They point out that Australian sauropods ranged from 45 to 60 degrees south in paleolatitude. Hmm. And the term paleolatitude is important. That means that that was the position it was at when the animals were alive. Australia was quite a bit farther south back then. It was still basically connected to Antarctica, at least in the beginning of the Cretaceous. But Australian sauropods weren't as far south as some other Gondwanan sauropods. So even at 60 degrees south, there were things farther south. Oh, that's weird to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Connected to Antarctica, but (laughs) I guess there were also sauropods in Antarctica. Yeah, I think there's one in Antarctica and there are some in pretty far south in Patagonia too. And basically all of Gondwana was quite a bit farther south in the Mesozoic, including North America even, was on the equator 
for a good portion of the Mesozoic. Well, that's weird to think about. A lot of things shifted north over the Mesozoic. Today, the farthest south sauropod fossils in Australia are in Lightning Ridge, which are about 29 and a half degrees south compared to 60 degrees south, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I assume means that Australia was about 30 degrees farther south in the Cretaceous or maybe 15 degrees, depending on which fossils they were. But a close second in terms of how far south the current fossils are is on the west coast. It's less than one degree north near Geraldton, West Australia. And the Paleobio database only shows one unidentified sauropod fossil from there, but it's from the Jurassic, interestingly. For now, there might be others found later. Yeah, that one was found with a theropod. It's kind of cool. But the theropod was harassing it. Yes. Not the other way around. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Or it was eating it after it was gone, or it just lost a tooth being Mm. nearby in a completely unrelated occurrence. I guess. (laughs) But... You might be thinking, if you're thinking about the Australian continent moving north, that the paleo latitude of that western part of Australia might have been farther south than the paleo latitude of the Lightning Ridge, because the Lightning Ridge was in the Cretaceous, whereas Geraldton was in the Jurassic. But something really weird happened in Australia. Even though that find in western Australia is about 70 million years older, than the sauropods in Lightning Ridge, they probably weren't farther south. In fact, they were probably farther north, even though Australia was generally shifting north. What happened there? (laughs) So Australia actually spun significantly during the Mesozoic, and it spun counterclockwise. So if you're looking down at Earth. Usually we think of the continents breaking up, but I never think of them spinning. Yeah. So Australia spun quite a bit, as did Antarctica. And what happened is... When Australia was in the beginning of the Mesozoic, Perth was basically on the north side of Australia, hmm. and then it turned about 90 degrees counterclockwise and you know, ended up in the current position with Perth on the west side. Is that why, if you're looking at a map, the shape of Australia doesn't seem to fit as well as the shapes of, say, South America and Africa? You're getting exactly to where I went on this rabbit hole. Okay. Yes. But in fact, if you look closely at a globe, not a map, you'll notice that Antarctica matches really well with Australia. So Mm. Australia has that concave curve on the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. And if you look on a globe, you'll see that Antarctica has a convex (laughs) matching shape on its side that's closest to Australia. So they used to be connected there and then they spun because Antarctica used to be nestled in between Australia, the southeast of Africa, and actually India used to be down there too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it spun counterclockwise with Antarctica going farther south and then Australia drifting up north while it spun as well. So it's really weird. So Antarctica and Australia still look like they could piece together. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it looks just like when you look at it on a globe, you'll see that they match up. But when you look at it on a map, you can't see it because the map distorts Antarctica so much Mm -hmm. that it just looks like this big flat line. But on a globe, you can see this curvature that matches really well with Australia. Interesting. Yeah. And so someday they could all come back together. They'd probably come back in different ways and smash everything up and be weird. Sure. (laughs) But yeah, I had never noticed that before. I'm sure this is not news to everybody, but I I thought it was fascinating that you can see that combination because I always think Africa and South America are so obvious on the map. Mm-hmm. 
but I've never well, noticed Australia. We're usually looking at maps, not globes. Yeah, exactly. And with that fun fact, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.